Father, you are our salvation. You are our hope. We have no hope outside of Christ and outside of all that you have accomplished for us in him. And so it is in Christ that we rejoice in Christ. We rest in Christ. We hope to the glory of the Father and the power of you, Holy Spirit, who has awakened us and made us alive to these glorious truths and realities, which are the loves of our heart. And I pray now that as we together open up your word, that it would be that sanctifying word, maybe for some that saving word, for the first time that they would come to know you this morning. But for all of us who do know you, that it would be that word that renews and shapes and molds us into our Savior. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Um, some of you will remember, uh, I may have... May have shared this. I don't. I don't. I don't remember. But I was on a plane uh, several weeks ago when Ellie and I traveled out uh, to our missionaries in Croatia. And on that plane ride, the long one, uh, the long part, the first leg, uh, I sat next to a man who was uh, a Christian. He he claimed to be a Christian. He sang, uh, did singing, and I think he even traveled to other churches and sang. And so we had a conversation, and and it was fine. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, you know, where he was and that kind of thing. But we were just enjoying fellowship as those who acknowledged Christ as Lord and and so forth. And uh, I made a statement at some point in there about uh, all of creation, everything, our salvation, and God's working in all of those things as being his, or his glory being the highest end of those things. In other words, that God's glory is his greatest concern. God's glory is the greatest end to all things. God's glory is the love of his people. And you would think, hey, you'd get an amen or a praise God or something like that. Deeply offended him. Deeply offended him. And then that began a conversation in which I later apologized for part of my attitude. Um, in which that was an offense that, or that was a truth that to him was an offense. That God would be working towards his own glory. And it wouldn't be about us at the center of his purposes. That we would be a glorious receivers of his love. Glorious receivers of uh, his grace to participate in all of the wonderful things that he did in his son. But that the end of it and the joy of a believer's heart is actually that God himself and Christ himself would be put on display for all of creation. So that we might delight in him and enjoy him and do all of those things. Uh, I thought that would be a no-brainer. But in fact, this man represents a lot of what contemporary Christianity is. Well, the gospel has as its highest end, as its most emotional, emotionally grabbing statement of how valuable we are. And we are valuable as God's image bearers, and we do have dignity as God's image bearers, to be sure. But that's a secondary issue. The primary issue is the glory of God. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ, that to you is a joy. You love to hear that. You love to hear about the glory of God. And you love to hear about how it's not about you. It's about his work in the Son and how wonderful that is. If you don't know him, then that may be strange to you. Or if you're coming from a different environment, that may even be offensive to you. But in our text this morning, which is going to be in Psalm 8, God, through David extols his own glory in creation, primarily in the creation of man as the one who uniquely reflects that glory, and ultimately the glory of God that will be manifest in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to consider this under three simple headings. 
that one, God's glory is a central theme of creation in Scripture. That God's glory is the central theme, a central theme of Scripture and His created purposes. These will be up there, so if I state it in a different way, don't worry. <laughs> uh, it'll be up there. Number two, and that God's glory is uniquely displayed in the creation of man as his image bearers. That God's glory is uniquely displayed in the creation of man as his image bearers. And number third, that God's glory in man is ultimately manifest in the person of Christ. So those are three simple statements that we'll use to organize our thoughts for Psalm 8. But let's begin by reading the psalm, and then we'll look at those a bit more closely. So Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him for a little while, while lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This is a glorious, glorious psalm. And so let's note then the first point, which is at the very beginning of this psalm, that God's glory is central to his created purpose. God created all things, and God created anything to display his glory, and that is good. It's right. It's delightful. And so this psalm begins and ends with these words. They act as bookends and they set the theme for everything that comes in between. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. That's the reality that captures uh, his heart. It's the theme that runs through the entire psalm. And it's the theme that runs through creation. The theme that runs through redemption. The theme that runs through Judgment, the theme that runs through ultimately to the end of all things, which is the new creation and a new heavens and a new earth on which the righteous alone will dwell with God and all of the saints. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this word, uh, this particular point, but let me just make it simply by reading some key texts that explain this. Why did God create? What is, what is creation screaming out to all of us who were made to observe it? Live on it. Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of what? Can you finish? The glory of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Romans 1.18. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. What is man to do? To look up at the heavens? To look at the the vast expanse of the universe, to look at the details of the smallest part of creation, and everywhere see a glimpse and a sparkle of the glory of God, and to respond in worship. That's why it exists. Secondly, in redemption. Exodus 15. If you remember Exodus 15 is a, is a song 
from Israel in response to God's deliverance from the slavery of Egypt through the plagues and that marvelous leading them through the Red Sea on the way to the land that he had promised. And this is what they say, Exodus 15, 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea, who is like you among the gods, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders. In Ephesians 1, that great laying out of God's eternal purpose of redemption in Christ, the refrain is repeated to the praise, can you finish it, of the glory of his grace. The praise of the glory of his grace. It's manifest in judgment. Isaiah 2.11, referring ultimately to this judgment that's going to come, it's still future. He says this, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The Lord alone will receive glory on that day. Jesus and his work said at the center of it, it was to glorify the Father. When he was anticipating the cross, he said, Father, glorify your name. And the Father said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. When Christ returns and every knee is bowed to him, it says they will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, what? To the glory of God the Father. And that's what's going to fill the new heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, 22 through 24 says this, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. When you get to the end of all things, which is the final uh, a realization of the purpose of all things, it is a full fullness of the glory of God. And then it's summarized by Paul after his great explanation of the gospel in Romans 1, all then going through chapter 11. He ends it with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It is about the glory of God. When David says, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, he is reflecting what is true. God's glorious name is majestic through all of the earth. He's expressing what a regenerate and a believing heart sees in all of creation and how a believing and regenerate heart responds to what is seen there. So it's about God's glory. That is a central theme in all of Scripture. He uses two terms here for God that reflect his glory both as God, the true God, and God as he is in relationship, covenant relationship with his people. It's interesting. You can see that in your Bibles. Now, you know when you see in your Bible and uh, Lord is capitalized, what is it's translating? You might know that. What is in the Hebrew, what we say, Yahweh. And if it's translated as a capital L and then the rest of the word, it translates the word generally Adonai. Adonai. And so here it is, our Lord Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh, our Lord. And O your Lord Yahweh is that familiar name that was revealed to Moses, particularly in that instance in the burning bush 
when God says, this is the God of Israel, this is the God who made the covenant with Abraham, this is the God who formed you as a nation, this is the God who's going to deliver you from this nation to fulfill his promise, this is the God who created all things, you will know me by this name, Yahweh. And he says, I am, or translated, one way to translate that, there's really two ways, that, and both could be acceptable. One is to say, I am that I am, and there's nuances of that, but I am that I am, or it could be translated in a future sense, I will be that I will be. Both are essentially communicating a same truth of divine glory. The first, the most common way, and probably the correct way, I am that I am, it speaks of God's independence, his self-existence. Those of you who are sometimes in the theology class know that fancy word, a aseity. It means that he is separate from all creation, self-existent. He depends on nothing. He gives life to all things. He's independent is a way to think of it. And that's what this word communicates. He is life. He gives life. The second translation, I will be that I will be, if that's the way we take it, speaks of God's continuity. And it would include the first idea, but emphasize that he is who he is and he will always be who he is, always for his people, always throughout time. That he is who he is. But the second phrase, Adonai as well, so that, that idea, of course, because revealed to Moses in the context of his covenant with them, speaks of a relationship. But so does the second phrase. Look at what he says, our Lord, our Lord. In other words, he's, he's coming into God's presence in the context of prayer, not as God is distant and remote, though reflecting his transcendent nature, that Yahweh, I am that I am, your God, out infinite. But he's also saying, you are our covenant God, you are our Lord. You are our king, you are our leader, you are the one who rules over creation and your people. And you're our Lord in a unique sense. Remember, he's saying this as an Israelite, as a Jew. You're our Lord. You're the one that has made a promise to us. You have redeemed us from Egypt. You've made promises to us. You've given us, the, in this case, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. You've given us your presence uniquely in the Holy of Holies. You're our Lord. You're our Lord in a way that you aren't. Related to the rest of humanity by relationship, by covenant and covenant relationship. And so this is both speaking of God's transcendent glory and including as well his nearness to his people. The idea of closeness, the fancy word for that some of you know is eminence. That he is near to all who call upon him. And notice when he speaks then of the centrality of God's glory, he focuses on that glory as it's displayed in created things. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens, he says. Later in verse 3, he considers the work of his fingers, the heavens as the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars and all that you have ordained. In what way is God's majesty or superiority, which is the idea behind majesty, over all things manifest in the earth? And it could simply be said this, God's glory as he's already been stated in Psalm 19 in Romans 1, is manifest everywhere the eye can see. So whether somebody sees it or not, the glory of his person and of his name is manifest. Calvin wonderfully said that statement that uh, you're probably familiar with, that there's nowhere the eye can look that we cannot see a spark of God's glory, a divine glory. 
And so in that sense, God's glory is displayed in everything that he has made, whether man sees it or not, it is displayed in all of the earth. It's reflecting here what would be uh, from the lips of, or whatever, from the angels, the seraphim, that, and those who flew around the throne of God in Isaiah's vision, where they said, holy, 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 we sang this this morning, the Lord God Almighty, what did they say? The whole earth is full of your glory. Everything is a revelation of your glory. But then he says something interesting in verse 2, speaking of this glory and how it's revealed. He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. I don't know about you, but I read that and that just stands out like a sore thumb. What in the world are you talking about? What do nursing babes have to do with enemies of God and his glory and his strength and heavens and all of that? What does David mean by this? And how is this related to God's glory and to his power? Well, there's a couple of ways to take this generally. And, and even though some will emphasize one of these or the other, they're really together. They both include the idea naturally of, of the other. Calvin would represent one position. It says it takes it to mean this way. The intent of, the, of David is this, that, that infants display God's power by bringing forth life, by creating life, and then by his providence and care over thi- all things, sustaining that life, though it's weak and yet is upheld and sustained and cared for by God's power. And in doing that, God is displaying his control over all things and that his purposes are being fulfilled so that even a nursing babe is a rebuke to the enemies of God. That's one way. Another sees it from the perspective primarily of God's covenant relationship, his determination to have a redeemed people who will triumph on the earth. And say that this statement then establishes the glory of God in this way. In assuring that there will be a continuance of God's covenant people who will know the fulfillment of the promises that he made to them. And who will have ultimate victory over God's enemies. So therefore, though the enemies of God would seek to destroy, would seek to eliminate, would seek to cast down. God will fulfill his promise and bring about a new humanity for his glory. One said it this way, the sound of the children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on the earth. That's the idea of strength. It could be bulwark or fortress, strong place. Strength is a good way to translate it. The sound of the children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. The continuity of the human race is God's way of assuring the ultimate glorification of an earth populated with a new humanity. Reference Habakkuk 2.14. So David then is here saying, your majesty, your glory, your power is displayed by the sheer immensity of the things that you have made. But it's also displayed not only in the grand things, but in the weakest things. God's glory is displayed so that even in reflective of the gospel, in weak things, God is glorified. Because in weak, the weak things are made strong through him. So how does God achieve his purposes on earth through you and me? We're not the shining example of humanity. But God displays his glory in us. The weak things so that at the end, as Paul said in writing to the Corinthians, we would boast not in ourselves, we'd boast in the Lord. We'd say whatever the Lord accomplishes, it's him. Because 
it surely wasn't me. And so he displays his glory to the weak things. That idea is present here. He displays his glory in the weakest of the earth. What are the most vulnerable? What are the weakest? Infants and babes. And there, God displays his strength. So first of all, then God displays his glory as the central theme of creation. The second point is this. In both the great things that he made and the small things. The second is this. That God's glory is uniquely displayed in the creation of man. Look at verses 3 through 8. I'll have to go a little quicker here. Because I do want to finish this morning. In verses 3 through 8, he says this. When I consider the work, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little while lower than God or heavenly beings. We'll talk about that in a minute. And you crown him with glory and majesty and you make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Some of that language should sound, sound familiar to you. Now first, just note this. The question that, that is drawn out of the heart in verse 4, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him, is not born out of a sense of his sinfulness. The idea here is of God's original created intent. It's born out of a sense of his smallness and frailty. He's saying, in light of the grand and the glorious things that you've created that reveal you, what, are, what is man, a speck of dust on the earth, that you would take thought of him? One put it this way. Humankind, dwarfed by the immensity of the universe, is taken up by the Lord, given glory, and made its master. And the psalmist is saying, what? Why? In the light of these great things, he's impressed by his smallness and the infinite glory and the majesty of the one who brought it all into being. And compared to that, there's a sense of our weakness. As a matter of fact, he uses, when he says, what is man that you take thought of him, that first word for man isn't what we're used to, Adam. It's another word, I'll probably pronounce it. There's a Hebrew Jewish person here, forgive me uh, for saying this wrong, Enosh. And there's a term for man that's translated by man that has the idea of weakness, of frailty. Of being limited. One described it in this way. That it describes man from the side of his impotence, frailty, and morality. And there's a sense where the unbeliever understands this as well. Carl Sagan, some of y'all might be familiar with that name. No friend of the truth. Infamously wrote in a book. And the title of the book was Pale Blue Dot. That was the title. Some of y'all may be familiar with that. Pale Blue Dot. And it was a response to a picture taken by a satellite, Voyager 1, and I think it was in 1990. And when it went out to these far reaches of our galaxy, they turned it around to look back and to take a picture. And when it took this picture, it famously took a picture in which the planet Earth shone. It was one of the most visible things uh, as this small, pale, tiny blue dot engulfed in this massive universe, this massive galaxy. It was about 4 billion miles away. And he says, he wrote a book in response to that picture. And this is what he says in the book. This is somewhat extended. I, I cut it down, but, this, but listen. He says, look again at that dot. As a matter of fact, there it is. I put a picture up there. So there's 4 billion. If you see, you can't even see it from where you are. There's a little tiny speck up in that little thing of this dot. And that's what the Voyager saw, that picture. 
And so Carl Sagan looks at this picture and he writes these words. He says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. He goes on, he says, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all of its vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. That was his response. You look at it, you see the planet, and there's an overwhelming sense of our smallness. His conclusion is we are insignificant. Ultimately, it's meaningless. There's no ultimate value. There's no ultimate purpose for us. There's no ultimate hope outside of our tiny, insignificant, meaningless little world. Now, Sagan was correct, actually. He was actually correct to have a sense of our smallness. That was a right response. We as believers should feel that as strongly as he felt that in terms of our smallness. We would not, we would not have a problem with that. And we would agree with the seeming insignificance of this tiny little planet, and for that matter, our galaxy and a universe of galaxies. That part is true. The point he missed, however, was this, and it's a rather obvious point, is that from that small blue dot, the planet Earth, he was a rational thinking creature who could look from that position and observe the universe and respond intelligently to it. Nothing else on Earth is doing that, but he is. He's forgetting that he's looking at a picture that man was able to build, a satellite that would take a picture from 4 billion miles away and send it back to that little blue dot. He forgot and missed that he was of such a nature so as to observe, think, reason, and respond to what he sees. And even more than the wonder and greatness of the universe is the fact that he's able to study, contemplate, and write about that experience. It's rather obvious, but that's absolutely essential in getting to what David's point is here in the psalm. Sadly, his experience, as it is for many unbelievers, was not to look up at the heavens, its immensity and our smallness, and to see the glory of God and to see the hand of a creator, and in that to see purpose and meaning and significance to that universe of man in relation to that creation. That's what he missed. He did not see God. Rather, he saw nothingness and was led ultimately to conclude that there is ultimate meaningless. The believer says, when I consider the work of your hands, or the heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man? And yet you have made him a little lower than God or heavenly beings. And you crown him with glory and majesty. And you make him to rule over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in under his feet. The bleeding eye sees what is really there, the glory of God. And in seeing the glory of God, there is a reflection we recognize of that glory in man. It is a reflection of the greater glory of God who made all these things. And man's place in the universe, your place in the universe then, is not insignificant or without purpose, but is bound to God's own purpose in the universe. His own purpose in creation at which he has placed man as a significant part. And that's what he caught. One note this, noted this in response to this passage. He says the most natural thought would be, the, the thought in light of the immensity and our smallness of the universe. Frail, puny man is as nothing before all this. But this thought is passed over in order to celebrate with grateful emotion and astonished adoration the divine love which appears in all the more glorious light. A love which condescends to a poor people, the dust of the earth. Another said this, responding to God's care for us. It is as if God's calling to mind his human creatures sparks such a longing for them that he must seek them out and lavish care on them. That's the believing response to this glorious universe, which the psalmist says is the work of your fingers. And so the immensity of the universe, while It amazes us for what it is, just merely as an event of creation, a product of creation. The wonder of the universe is the God who stands behind it and brought it all into being as a display of his glory. And the psalmist says it's the work of his fingers. And the idea is there of working on something small to sculpt it, it even in its detail. So when we look at the massiveness of the universe, it is to God a little thing that he does with his fingers and shapes to make what he wants. So immense is his glory. And man is unique then among all the creatures to see this. We have probably one of the smartest dogs that's on the face of the earth now under our care shortly. He never looks at the stars and has this response. Never. He has no capacity within him. This is the point. Nothing of God's creatures can appreciate that glory, and yet Carl Sagan and all of us can look up, build a satellite to go light years out into the universe, and then take pictures and write about it and feel it in a way that creation, any other part of creation, can't. Why? That is because we were made to do just that. We were created and endowed with the unique capacity which Scripture describes as being made in the image of God so that bearing that image, we might look up at the glory of the creator and respond to him emotively. Respond to him with our wills. Respond to him with our lives. We, among all the creatures, uniquely can do that because we were made in the image of God. This is Genesis 1.26 that's being reflected here. He created man, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Why? To populate the earth and to rule over it. That's why. To be his vice regents. To live in fellowship with him. 
This ability of Carl Sagan to understand math and astronomy and the universe as he did is because though in rebellion to it, even he bears that mark and that reality that sets man apart from every part of creation, the image of God. It is this image of God that gives man dignity. It is this image of God and our place in God's creation that gives us responsibility before him. The secular mind wants to reduce man to a mere accident, the product of chance, without significance, beyond what can be experienced in this world. The God of Israel and ultimately the God revealed in Jesus Christ gives man his ultimate dignity and purpose in the universe as the only creature who bears that image and participates in our creator's own rule over that creation in an accountable way. Now, just as a side note, the meaning of the image of God is much debated. But in the end, whatever the particulars might be, if one particular explanation of the image of God, we can say this in its most basic point. That whatever the particulars may be, we can say that it is those qualities endowed to man which enable us to live in communion with God, to reflect his character, to rule over creation, to manifest his glory, and make possible the incarnation of the Son of God. Whatever it is, it's that. It's that. And look at what he says. To bear this image, to be this unique among God's creation on earth, he says in verse 5, yet... Even though we are small, yet we have this privileged position because you have made him, and I'll just read out of the NASB, a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is an incredible statement. Now let me note here, it's a translation issue. If you have an ESV, it says you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings. If you have a New American Standard, older American standard or some other translations, it says, God, you've made him a little lower than God. The term here is the one we're familiar with, Elohim. It's Elohim. In the Old Testament, this term is used, as you're familiar, most commonly to refer to God as the true God of Israel or God's small g as the gods of the pagan nations, the God of the idols. It is occasionally used to speak of a like a strong ruler, a mighty one, and it is used on occasions rarely to speak of angelic or heavenly beings. Context is what decides. It's one of those things. And when you do word studies, beloved, context, context, context. So what does he mean here? Does he mean heavenly beings or does he mean God? Is he referring to God? Well, interestingly, and we, we do need to go this just slightly, in the Septuagint, as you'll remember, that was an ancient translation made over a period of time. It wasn't made in one night or one month or 70 days, which is why the Septuagint. But anyway, it is a translation into Greek of the Hebrew Bible because many of the Jews at this time had lost their ability to read Hebrew. And so there was this translation made into Greek. And so we have quotations from the Septuagint in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament and so forth. Well, the Septuagint translates this Bible, this Greek translation of the Hebrew, it translates this word Elohim with angelos. You'll remember that, angel is what we refer to it, messenger, or divine. It could be messenger in a variety of capacities, but a divine messenger is usually what we think of. Angels in heaven. And what's interesting, however, besides that, that could be dealt with enough, is this, that this verse, which we'll look at later, is quoted in reference to Christ, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses, uh, I think, 5 through 8, or 5 through 9, right in there. And they take the Septuagint, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
takes the translation of the Septuagint and says he, man was made a little lower than the angels. So what decision do we make here? Well, here's the tension. If you read this without anything else, purely as it was originally written by David, then the most natural way to take this word Elohim would be, say, God's or God, a little lower than God. But in light of the New Testament's adoption of the ancient Greek translators in the Septuagint as angel, it is best to take, although less commonly in this way, but still this way sometimes, to take this probably as heavenly beings, made him a little lower than heavenly beings, which would be to say angels. In other words, in the, the class and the order of created beings, you have made him a little lower than angels. So it's probably better to go with that because of the testimony of the New Testament particularly. But we'll fill this out a bit. What are some of the ways, and I'll just note this also in the context of Hebrews 1.14, as angels are ministering spirits to God's people. In 1 Corinthians 3, humans will judge angels, so there's a little, it's more complex than that. Let's look at some of the ways, however, that this glory to man as God's image bearers is unfolded, and we'll stick to this psalm. What are some of the ways this high position of man, then, is reflective of God's own relation to creation and man as his image bearers? That's the question. What way is this high position of man as God's image bearers a reflection of God's own relation to creation and to man as his image bearers? Let me give you at least three, and I'll just say these simply. One is this. The one is first brought out in the language of majesty. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. Again, this is in the context of God as Israel's covenant God, creator, ruler, sustainer of the universe. God, it really speaks of his kingship, his kingship. God is the ultimate king over all of the earth. Let me just give you one verse. There's many, but I have Psalm 29:10. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. They understood that he was the ruler over the universe that he made. Yet, man as the image bearer of God is given the position of kingship and authority over what God has made. Only man was given that, was tasked with ruling over creation under God's authority. Only man was given to tame the beast, as he says in verse 7, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, and whatever passes through the sea. Only man was tasked with that responsibility to exercise authority and to rule over it. Interestingly, just as a side note there, James 3, 7, don't, don't turn there, is he says this, Every species of beast and of birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Reflecting this idea of ruling, having dominion over, over creation. And so thus, he says to man, in reflection of God's own authority and ultimate kingship, he says, rule over the works of my hands. And God says to man, I have put all things under your feet. That's verse 6. This is a statement of derived authority. An authority granted to man to exercise dominion and mastery over all that God 
has made. Not an authority and a mastery to exploit creation, but rather to cultivate and care for creation in a way that all of its riches may be used for human flourishing. Sin makes it selfishly and for destruction. God meant that dominion and that authority and that rule to be for the expression of what is good and right and caring for creation. But even though affected by sin, that position of man on creation remains to rule and have dominion over it. And indeed, man does, whether they use it for good or ill, man exercises that kind of dominion and that kind of rule. And that's what he's acknowledging here. And the phrase, put all things under his feet, would eventually, we'll look at, come to have meaning in relation to Christ. But here, God is specifically applying it to humanity in relation to God's original design. God created man, placed him on the earth, man bearing his image, and said, everything is to be under your feet. And you're to rule over it for me. So that's one way. Man participates in God's kingly authority over creation. There's a second way in which this high position is. That God relates intimately to men in a way that he doesn't with the rest of creation. The very commands of God to rule over creation is understood and grasped because of those specific capacities for relationship that God has placed within man. We already mentioned that briefly in terms of in the image of God. Remember that God established man's care for and rule over this in Genesis 2 in the context of relationship. He spoke to him. Genesis 3 indicates that God regularly walked with him. He gave him warnings. He gave him consequences of blessing and consequences of ultimately death. He expected him to have a rational, moral response to him of obedience He expected him to have an affectionate response to him in terms of love and trust and desire. All of this he created man to exercise this rule in relationship with God. Not apart from God, but in relationship to him. And in such tender words, God delights in this. He says in verse 4, And what is man you take thought of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You care for him. So it's the idea of a superior, this term, visiting a subordinate to affect their circumstances. It could be for better or worse, for here, for the better. It has the idea of God's careful attentiveness to provide for whatever man needs for his flourishing and to fulfill his task. That's the idea. It's amazing. Number three is this. One is because man participates in God's rule and kingship. Man is to do this in fellowship with him. And in that, number three, this favored position of man, by God's own created purpose, is to crown man with glory and majesty. Man. Look at what he says. Verse five. You crown him with glory and majesty. Who's he talking about? He's talking about human beings. Humanity. This is what God created us for. Now, this term majesty is different than the one used in verse 1. And here it has the idea of man as the ornament of God's glory. That's a way to put it. As the ornament of God's glory. But he says you have it. And you have it in a way that nothing else has it. 
And this is tremendous. Because behind this, we must understand, which is part of what motivated the question in the first place, is that God does not need man to rule over it. God, by an extension of his grace, has designed man out of his goodness, God's goodness, to include him in it. And to participate in its glory, its flourishing, and its fullness. Participate in his own, his own glory. God does this out of grace and not out of necessity. And this, beloved, going back, is what establishes the purpose of man's existence. That is what establishes the purpose of man's existence. It is not meaningless. It is not nothingness. It is not a life which has no consequence at the end. It is a life that has the greatest possible consequence. That is accountability to God and also the potential to participate with God in his glory and the fullness of his created design in the universe. That is man's purpose, ultimately. To rule over creation in harmony with God and to bear and give him glory. But there's an idea here, and this is going to lead us into the final point. Which I'll try to make fully if, if a bit quickly. And that's this, before we transition into it. But there's the added idea here then, as I mentioned, of God, of man in covenant with God. He's speaking as an Israelite. He's speaking as a Jew. He's speaking as one under the Mosaic covenant, under the old covenant. He's speaking as one who was given an inheritance in the promises of God. A land, a people, a future, a glory. I know the plans that I have for you, Jeremiah said. These plans of flourishing and goodness. He speaks as one who knew those promises. However, the reality is that the nation of Israel, in light of all of her privileges, and in light of all of the mercies that she received from God, could never have realized what the, David is talking about here, never. Because of sin, because of human sin. In fact, rather than all things being placed under man's feet in this sort of glorious experience of rule and this glorious experience of bringing it into subjection for God's glory, would never be realized even by Israel because of the reality of sin. In fact, we already know that God destroyed the whole world because of sin. Rather than putting it under their feet, he wiped out man off the face of the earth of it. And then he promised he's going to do this again in the future. In Psalm 96, 13, we won't go there. He's going to come to judge the earth. David himself is the great king of Israel, as one of the most righteous kings ever of Israel. We know just by our looking at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, even he couldn't be one who could bring about this fulfillment because he had his own sin. As a matter of fact, he spent the latter part of his life under the discipline of God as the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He had trouble that followed him all of his days. How in the world could he know this? All things under his feet. He couldn't even handle Israel under his feet. So this is where... This is where a certain tension lies, even in the writing of this psalm. And this goes to the third point. That God's glory in man is ultimately manifested then in the person of Christ. Now, is this conjecture? Are you reading things into this? No. No. Hopefully I can show you. This is God's ultimate end of what he's looking here. Even though David is speaking out of 
the intentions of God and the purpose of God and the creation of man, the ultimate realization of this and what gives us its actuality, its fullness, its substance, is the person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews does. Now I'm going to have to jump to the chase here. So look at me just briefly with Hebrews chapter 2. This psalm is actually used several times in the New Testament. It's used, Jesus quotes this psalm when he was heading into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. And you remember the children were saying, Hosanna, and you know, give glory to the highest. And the leaders were angry at him. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus quotes from Psalm 8. And he says, have you never read that out of the mouth of babes will come glory, essentially, to God? So he's saying they're just reflecting what God created them for, to give glory to himself, which is a veiled reference to his own deity, because that praise is directed to God. And Jesus says, it's rightly directed to me. It's used again here. Uh, we'll look at some other references in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 5. And the Hebrews here, the writer of Hebrews, is establishing the supreme glory of Christ, the superiority of Christ to everything else. And he says this in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. He did not subject it to angels concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things into subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him. He left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was we could add himself made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, listen, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The Son of God became man by fully sharing in humanity to fulfill God's original purpose for humanity by perfectly displaying the image of God in man upholding God's righteousness and redeeming humanity from the curse of sin so that in Christ, the God-man might be restored to a place of honor or through the, in Christ, man might be restored to a place of honor and know his original purpose in creation and the full extent of God's design in man bearing his image. He was anticipating Christ. No, this is not something he did for angels. He'll say later in verse 16, angels fell, done. Hell, judgment. Man fell, redemption, sending my son so that you might know the purpose for which I created you. The ultimate end of creation 
of man is realized in the incarnation of the Son, in his redemption, in his resurrection, and in his rule over all things. In Christ, God brought about a new humanity, united believers to him by his Spirit, united us who know him to his life, his glory, his rule, his inheritance, and his fellowship within the Godhead forever. That's the purpose of creation. That's why God created anything. When God, the Father, through the Son, made everything that is, it was to prepare for this one event. The incarnation where Christ would take on humanity, redeem a people for himself, and then wipe out this old one under the curse of sin and create a new heavens and earth where we as God's people might dwell in the fellowship of the Godhead in union with Christ by the Spirit forever. And to know his glory. It's an anticipation of the incarnation. And you say, am I making that up? Let me just read to you. And we're going to have to end with this. But a couple of verses. And there's so much to say in Ephesians. But listen to this. We've read this before. What did Paul pray? Now listen in light of what was just said to Paul's prayer. Okay, in light of what was just said, listen to Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart, speaking to believers, may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his, the glory of his inheritance. That's Christ's inheritance in you and me, the saints. We are his inheritance, a part of his inheritance. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And these things are in accordance with the working of his strength, of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, the Son, and gave him his head over all things to the church, us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's why God created everything to know this in his son. Let me just give you one more verse. Colossians 1, I'm not going to read it, but you want to write that down and read it too. For he who created all things did so that he might reconcile all things to the Father and be the firstborn, the preeminent one, the most glorious one of all of creation. Colossians of 1 Corinthians says this. You're familiar with it? Let me read it. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. By man came death, by another man came resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive, that is, all who are in Christ. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ that is coming. And then comes the end. Think Psalm 8 when you hear this. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, that is, that stands in resistance to God, will be done. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There's Psalm 8. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The ultimate curse of sin. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepting him who put all things in subjection to him. That is not the father. And when all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. He's going to redeem back a humanity. He's going to gain 
all of the rights and the privileges and inheritance of the kingdom. He's going to have as a part of that inheritance a people that then when all is accomplished, he handed back to the Father so that there would be this glorious harmony of the completed work of the Trinity in union now and for shared fellowship with all of redeemed humanity on a new heavens and a new earth. And that's exactly, and this is the last verse I'll read, the end of the Bible. Which is where ultimately that points us. And just listen to this, Revelation 22, 5, and then we'll pray. And we'll have to skip the closing song. Revelation 22, 5, this glorious picture of a new heavens and a new earth, glory shining all around. We are called sons of God. And then he says this, and there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of the Lamb nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever with Christ in that kingdom, under the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, forever. And that's why we're here, and that's what ultimately, which is more than even David would have known, was anticipated in the coming of Christ. And beloved, we share these things so that we might, one, delight in the glory of what God has done for us, and that we would live consistent with God's purposes in glorifying himself through us and ultimately in Christ. Let me pray, and then uh, just for time's sake, we're going to make this our end. We won't have a closing hymn. Uh, Do remember that there is the security meeting afterwards and then a music meeting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these glorious truths. And even though they are glorious, and even though they are wonderful, we can't see them apart from your grace that's why paul had to pray that for the ephesians church that's why we in the spirit of paul and with him pray for that same thing as a part of your will that we would know these glories help us to see them take off whatever blinders of unbelief or the dulling effects of sin in our own hearts and to pursue sanctification so that we might see and taste these things all the more and have hope unshakable Obedience more full, worship more satisfying, love more complete and self-denying. Do these things in us as a body and as a church. Accomplish these things as we know that you will through your word. As we understand your word better, your spirit works through the word and does its work in us and helps us to see and behold your wonder. Father, we thank you for forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for the hope. We thank you for your dear and beloved son, the Lord Jesus. May we walk in a manner worthy of him. In his name, amen.